0: Welcome to Brave Conversations with me, your host, Lee Sloan. As difficult as conversations can be these days, we believe that conversations still matter. Together, let's be brave enough to think, brave enough to feel, brave enough to change the world. One Brave Conversation. Of time. Hello and welcome to season three of Brave Conversations. We have changed the name of our podcast from the Least Loan Podcast to Brave Conversations. We're pretty much doing the same thing, so it's not a new podcast, just a new name. And I'm excited about this new season. I want to let you know that I'm committed more than ever to bringing you quality content. And so, in order to do that, we're going to have a few changes. I'm going to be slowing down a little bit on my production schedule. Um, as you might know, I'm a homeschool mom, busy mom, and so we're going to be doing a new episode about every other week, and I just wanted to give you a little heads up on that because I want to have enough time to make them quality, and you know they might be a little longer than they used to be, but we want to just give you our, our full effort here. Now, if you've been here from the beginning, you'll know that we've established from day one on this podcast that words matter that the words we use or don't use determine what's important to us as a society and it actually defines how we draw lines around our attitudes and behaviors. So today, I'm going to push to the forefront this word that you heard a little bit earlier called tribalism and in particular toxic tribalism. Now, depending on how you view the word tribalism, it can be somewhat neutral or even good and I know that I, I'm, years ago I read a book by Seth Godin, you might have read it too, called the book Tribes, right? And so we started using this word tribes more and more after he wrote that book, and we realized as a society that we are part of tribes, and it's really cool to be a part of a tribe. Um, we're tribal beings, right? And so part of what we see happening in our culture is we're, we're able to communicate with more and more people online. And as our society becomes more global, we, because we're human and we need to be connected, it's really hard to be connected to that many people. I mean, are you really friends with all your Facebook friends? Probably not. And so what happens is we actually lose a sense of who we are as a member of a of a smaller tribe if we don't look for that um, if we just think of ourselves as, as part of the global tribe we kind of lose the sense of what we need as humans so tribes are very important for our own development as human beings and you know we're, we're all made to belong somewhere to a particular someone people that we know their names you know it's kind of like the the cheer song you know you want to be where everybody knows your name that's right you know that song If you're as old as I am, you know that song. (laughs) Now, I want to introduce you to my friend Hansel Orzami. He's one of the founding members of Brave Conversations. And I also have a friend, Bonnie Woodside, and we go way back. And so we have uh, Hansel's a little more on the right. Bonnie's a little more on the left. And so I want to get their opinions on tribalism from the right and the left perspective. So throughout this episode, I'm going to be showing you their thoughts on toxic tribalism in our culture check it out
1: tribalism isn't necessarily a bad thing i think we've needed tribalism to survive and to progress um, in our current society i mean if we didn't have tribalism back when we didn't have these major technologies we would have um, died alone (laughs) we would have not formed any um, families then we wouldn't have formed any villages or clans and We wouldn't have cities and nations today. And so tribalism is um, not bad, but when it becomes toxic is when you don't focus on the wrongdoing of your tribe and um, you either ignore it or you cover it up knowing that it's wrong and you stick with your tribe instead of trying to improve your tribe. So That's what I think toxic tribalism is.
2: Hey, so to me, tribalism in and of itself is a survival skill innate in all of us, right? Humans are hardwired to feel connected to other people who are like them. Um, When tribalism becomes toxic is when a leader or leaders of a group choose to take advantage of those around them. Um, it's when tribalism is used to suppress others who are not in one's tribe, attempting to like diminish other people's worth in order to gain something. Right.
0: So if we go back in our culture, once upon a time, our tribes were sort of more tribal. (laughs) Everyone from Romans to Incans has started their history as tribes. So, we see that the human race is made to be tribal and we were made to identify with a group and feel a sense of loyalty to that group. But what happens when the sense of loyalty or belonging to one group causes harm to another? What happens when superiority rises up and we begin pitting our tribes against each other? And that's what I will define today as toxic tribalism. It's a temptation for any strong tribe to disintegrate into something that becomes toxic to both themselves and the tribes around them. And I believe that no one is completely immune to toxic tribalism. It's easy to recognize it in other people, pretty hard to see it in ourselves. And I would contend that the major key in issues like race isn't privilege, but it's actually toxic tribalism. Toxic tribalism keeps us on edge with certain people. It spurs on all thing, all kinds of things like crime and war. At its heart, toxic tribalism is our human desire to set ourselves and our own group apart as superior to others. It's the birthplace of racism, sexism, and almost any other kind of ism you can think of.
1: One of the consequences of this is when people stop talking... Is uh, and 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 the reason why they stop talking is because they believe the other side has nothing good to say or nothing true to say. In, fa- um, in fact, they just demonize the other side, so they don't even converse with them. When the two sides or or two tribes stop talking, there's only one way out of it. It's that full separation, like geographical. Uh, separation will happen or there'll be physical conflict. And this is, uh, uh, this is something I'm really concerned about is because if the right and the left in the United States can't find any common ground with anything, then two terrible things are inevitable where a total separation would mean that Um, The two strengths of the two sides will not be found in the same geographical location. You're just going to have echo chamber after echo chamber. Um, One of the examples, I live in California and it's a Democratic supermajority. And um, man, there's maps for feces in big cities so that you won't step in it. Um, the homelessness homelessness crisis is going crazy um, because of of a lot of very left leaning policies and there 's no counter um, policies on the right that can get through, so it becomes this echo chamber and it gets worse now you can say the same thing about the right whereas the right wing would get really authoritarian and moralistic and Uh, you would lose your freedoms that way so one way you lose your freedoms because terrible things are happening (laughs) you know like disease like the homelessness crisis here causes so much disease like um you know one expert said uh, we're in danger of the bubonic plague in california whereas on the right wing it tends to be authoritarianism and um you know moral panic and then you lose certain freedoms that way Either way, it's bad. I, I think the two different sides need each other, um, not just to create a balance, but I think they need each other to progress forward into better technologies and better ways to do um, life.
0: Now, in our current era, we've become excited about this term called diversity, right? We've all been encouraged to celebrate our individuality in this. What we used to call a melting pot, now we call it a toss salad because we want to uh, retain our individual identity, right? And so we call this whole experiment America. And I think a lot of good has come out of this. We've gotten in touch with who we are and the many nations from which we've come, and there's so much beauty in life in that. In fact, many cultural tribes that had formerly felt suffocated into oblivion. Or maybe felt marginalized by the larger culture have now found a place to breathe and to express themselves in that sort of tossed salad that we've created. It's wonderful and it's healing. But I look toward the future with caution. I wonder how much can any given tribe love who they are as a tribe and yet express who they are without demeaning or diminishing another culture this does get into the issue of race, but I want to give you first a non-racial example of what I think most of us have experienced at one time or another. Now, as you might know, I grew up in Los Angeles, but when I was 14, I moved to a little tiny town of about 2000 people called Camdenton, Missouri. And as you can imagine, it was a completely different culture for me. And I didn't notice this sort of attitude from all people, but as I've been around experiencing different places, I've noticed that in a lot of different cultures, many people who are from the city have this certain pride in being a city person. And a lot of people who have a more rural lifestyle have a different kind of pride in the life that they've chosen. And so I've noticed this sort of town mouse, country mouse syndrome. There's a sense that the opposite culture is out of touch with reality in some way that, you know, that other just doesn't get it. Now, I know I can't see you from where I am, but please, just nod your head if you know what I'm talking about, and I'll, I'll just take that in through the waves, the airwaves. Now, living in both types of places for me, for an equal amount of time, has made me realize this really stark contrast between these two lifestyles and the ways that they tend to alienate one another. So if, if I meet someone, let's say from the country, and this has actually happened to me before, let's say they're this hardcore country boy. I remember this guy I met in college. He had, he had the biggest belt buckle I've ever seen and a cowboy hat that really like a 10 gallon cowboy hat. And I was amazed. I didn't think that these people actually existed from where I came from in L.A., but he was legit. He was a real cowboy, and and it was amazing how he was able to treat me with so much tolerance and understanding. Just someone who really didn't know what farm life was all about before before I went to college there. I don't know that I'd ever really been up close and personal with a real cow, you know, <laughs> and so... When I saw him treating me with respect and having uh, just, you know, it wasn't a standoffish thing. I think we actually danced together at a dance. It was very interesting. I tend to have a lot of respect for those type of people because they've actually resisted the toxic tribalism that's so prevalent in our culture and that superiority that can come from having a very different life experience. We have to be really careful as we celebrate our own cultures that we have to constantly ask ourselves where and when. Does my pride in my own group turn into toxic tribalism? Sometimes it happens very subtly. And so this is one of those questions that's something to consider over and over again and to continue to check ourselves with. And I want to continue to explore this in the next couple of months with you. I really think it's super important to guard against making our own group identities and our tribes the most important thing about us, and also to guard against reading everything through an ethnic or a group identity lens. There's a really fine line between having pride in your culture and allowing that pride to make you think less of other cultures. One major aspect of toxic tribalism is that it causes shaming and shunning to happen. Now, I think we did talk about this, this shaming in our first season. You can look at the episode called Blacklisted. But it's a powerful, powerful strategy that prevents us from actually having the conversations we need to have. So if what we say doesn't line up with the current politically correct narrative for whatever tribe you're considering, then we might be labeled and vilified. We could possibly lose our jobs or our social status over it. And along with the shunning often comes the need for a sacrificial lamb. If something goes wrong, there's always a person that needs to be sacrificed on the altar of perceived justice. It often involves a key person being fired or reprimanded, having to issue an apology statement. You know, because of the nature of media these days, an event can go viral in just a few minutes. All of a sudden, you have people making judgments on things who live halfway around the world and we bring out our virtual pitchforks demanding someone's blood, right?
2: Right now, we're seeing a huge surge in toxic tribalism, mostly because I think um, that people feel like it's acceptable to discriminate on the basis of self-pride or tribal pride. Um, we have a leader that displays this on a regular basis, so I think people feel vindicated, like they, it's totally okay because um, they feel that they're not discriminating, that they're just feeling pride in, in where who they are and where they come from. However... Um, you don't have to make others feel less than in order to make yourself feel important.
1: One of the examples is um, between the left and the right in the United States is when you you think about what happened with the Mueller investigation and the Rus- Russian collusion thing uh, that it all came out to nothing, to big nothing burger, and. Um, There are some people that, hey, you know what? They said, well, they didn't find anything. Robert Mueller didn't really show any evidence of collusion. And it is what it is, and we'll move on. Uh, While there's others that just keep probing and probing and probing and probing, trying to find something. In fact, if we keep going this route, you being accused of something um will just make it true in the in the minds of people who operate with toxic tribalism you know whether you're the right or the left let's say uh you're the president the people that are against you have begun have begun to be delusional in the fact that even if they don't have any evidence they still think you're a a demon or something same thing can happen on the right i mean um the next president that's not a Republican uh, they'll probably get the same treatment. It's just, I think in our society and in in America, especially the left and the right divide has become so big.
0: And so as you can see, tribalism happens on both the right and the left. And I feel that if we can work to not necessarily eliminate it altogether, because I think that's a little bit unrealistic, But at least to recognize it when it's happening, I think we can, as a society, learn to minimize its toxic effects. Now, I want to talk about something that happened here in the last Alaskan election cycle on the state level. I saw what I thought was a textbook example of toxic tribalism. And it's something I've even been really hesitant to share about because toxic tribalism is actually a powerful political tool and it really works. So I want to sum up this story really quickly because it's kind of a terrible story. So I'm going to give you a heads up right now. If you have young children listening with you, you might want to kind of mute or pause this next little part and listen all by yourself, and then you can bring it back on. So it started when a man in Alaska committed a terrible sex act on a woman. And when I say it was on a woman, that's exactly what I mean. He, Just to sum up, he essentially violently choked her and then masturbated on her. It's a kind of unusual crime. I mean, he didn't exactly rape her, but it was pretty bad. Not something you would really think of when you're writing legislation, right? And so as you might imagine, the extent of Alaska law against sex crimes did not fully account for a crime like this. So technically, this crime was not classified as a sex crime under Alaska law. The perpetrator had already served about a year in a home confinement in in his home until it came time for his plea deal, where it was brought to a court in front of Judge Michael Corey. He was a presiding judge, and under the law, Judge Corey was not actually able to sentence this man to jail time because the crime didn't qualify under the law as an official sex crime. So, Judge Corey did what he could within the extent of the law and to the fullest extent of the law, but little could be done beyond home arrests and check-ins. Now, of course, his victims were upset. For such a crime, this man did deserve jail time. But instead of looking to legislators to amend the laws to assure, ensure a crime like this doesn't happen again— and it doesn't go unchecked, many people decided that fixing the problem included getting rid of Judge Corey. And as humans, it's very natural to have this very emotional and gut-level response. We instinctively feel that someone, a specific person, has to pay. So a group started forming with the intention of taking Judge Corey down. And I'm sure their reasons they felt for doing this were noble in their hearts and minds, And their intentions felt just, but the way I see it, this was a tribal move that needed a sacrificial lamb. This group ended up raising enough support to create such a successful campaign that effectively voted him out of office that year. Now, this was unusual because it was the first time since 1976. Now, in 1976, that was the year when judges began to be approved by a state judicial judicial counsel, which would say whether or not those judges actually had done a good job of upholding the law. So it was the first time that a council approved judge like Judge Corey had ever not been confirmed by the people of Alaska. And so Judge Corey fell victim to the tribe and everyone else wanted to do something because of the horrific nature of the case that was set before them. So, now Judge Corey is gone, and what have we learned? What message was sent? Now, you could go on to make the argument that it was good that Judge Corey paid the price because we showed a lesson to judges in the future not to go easy on sex criminals. But if you think about it, what's the message we want to send to judges? That they're not responsible to adhere to the laws written, but that they are responsible to punish people? and to provide retribution regardless of the law? As you can maybe see, this is a very slippery slope if we start teaching judges that they are responsible for retribution, not for the law. In the U.S., it's not how our court systems were designed to function. So how can we really tell if we're beginning to get pulled in by toxic tribalism? Well, here's a clue that I think. If when the focus goes from rectifying the situation so it doesn't happen again, when it shifts from that to the punishment of the villain, then I really think we've lost before we begun. When we decide to wrap the entire problem around a face and a name, that's when I think we could be operating in toxic tribalism. We've seen how this happens so many other times in in the news, there's an organization or an individual whose reputation is at stake. And and then the, that organization will distance themselves from that individual and use that individual as a sacrificial lamb. Now, when this whole Judge Corey thing was happening, it was actually happening during an election season, of course, because that's when people were voting on him. They were also voting on some of the other representatives. And I, I, we were involved in that election My husband was running for state house, and I can't think of a single politician, including ourselves, (laughs) that my husband, that would have wanted to risk their reputation and speak out for the sake of that judge. This is the harsh reality of politics. And as humans, we feel that distancing ourselves tends to absolve ourselves from any responsibility or connection to that person's sin. We want to sidestep the wrath of the global angry mob. In our viral age, what's true is not often as important as what's perceived and how it is perceived. Oftentimes, by the time the real story comes out, the rest of the story, the media has already moved on. I'm more concerned with headlines and less with truth. It's human nature to want to be a part of a group where all your ideas are met with nodding heads where everyone knows your name, where you feel that people understand where you're coming from and really know that you get it. Especially around these volatile issues, we take comfort in surrounding ourselves with our comfortable echo chambers and naturally want to partner with people that are similar to us. Either that or we just want to avoid the hard conversations altogether. But it takes real bravery to lean into a conversation with someone who represents another way of thinking and to resist the urge to participate in toxic tribalism. Now, I know we've barely scratched the surface of what this toxic tribalism is, but as we go through the series, I want to hear from you. I want to thank you for Hansel and Bonnie for your contributions to this podcast today. You guys had some great things to add. Now, if you, listener, could send me a brief audio file on what toxic tribalism is to you, or even if you have a story of how you've maybe been, been a victim of it or actually participated in it, please send it to me at lee L-E-I-G-H, at or you can private message me on my Facebook page. This is called Brave Conversations for a Reason. I want it to be a two-way conversation, so be brave and let your voice be heard. I'll leave you with one quick sneak soundbite from our next conversation with Cesar Martinson and James Prim. These guys are two former legislative aides on either side of the aisle. And I want it to, like, whet your appetite just a little bit for next time.
3: I've noticed, I, I've watched this t- sort of tribalism mm-hmm. that has come to dominate the political scene. And I agree with James. You know, mm-hmm. when you get into the parties, it is easy, you know, it's easy if you're not a, a really... If you're not aggressive in not letting it get to you, it, mm-hmm. you you fall into this tribal thinking that I think is very very destructive,
1: mm-hmm.
3: um, because it it dehuman, it does two things mm-hmm. that I think that that, mm-hmm. that I think are harmful to our political process. One is it dehumanizes people. Mm-hmm. You stop seeing people as um as as human beings with mm-hmm. dignity and and value, mm-hmm. and you start seeing them as enemies or supporters. It gets mm-hmm. into this militaristic thinking, yeah. and the second thing that it does is it, it does what I call this ad reductio on on the political conversation where, you know, if if you are, um, if, if you take an opposing viewpoint, instead of really addressing your view with any kind of, of clarity or trying to speak to where you're coming from, it, it, they just reduce it down to the sort of straw man that they can knock over and and, and and sort of misconstruing your position.